0: morning again. Today we'll be in Psalm 42. I invite you to turn there in the Bible. Um, if you're using one of the red church Bibles, I believe you can find it on page 469. Um, about 20 years ago, they came out with a movie called The Italian Job. I don't, I don't know if anyone saw it. Um, It's it's kind of a jewel heist flick. Early on in the movie, the thieves, they're planning this big heist, and one of the thieves says to another, Hey, how do you feel? Oh, I I feel fine. Well, you know what fine stands for, don't you? Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. (laughs) F-I-N-E. You know, there can be an enormous pressure in our culture. um, When someone asks you, hey, how are you doing, to say... I'm fine when you're actually feeling freaked out, insecure, erotic, and emotional. But you know, one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is they show us a God who's big enough to handle our biggest emotions. And that's what we see in Psalm 42. Well, let's turn to the text. It's attributed to the sons of Korah, these were Levites who helped with musical worship in the temple. Psalm 42, to the choir master, a maskele of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. it's hard to imagine a more concise picture of mourning than we get in these 11 verses. Tears, sleepless nights, happy memories that are now drowned out by unkind words, and just as hope starts to peek through, the cycle starts all over again. I wonder if we can relate to that. I wonder, maybe during a hard time in your life, did you ever write in a journal? Maybe something like this. It's 4 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm all cried out. God, I know you're there, but how could this happen? I mean, I know you love me, but it's like I'm getting hit by wave after wave after wave. Oh, God, why? Friends, in a situation like that, we all know there's no three-step plan to feel better. But you know, God knows that, too. And so in his kindness, he does not give us a three-step plan to feel better. He offers us something better. Himself. In Psalm 42, I think the main idea, and I have this printed in your bulletin, is that if we are God's children, we must train ourselves to bring our distress before the Lord, meditating on who he is and resting in all he's done. Because the only lasting path to hope it's remembering who God is and resting in what he's done. Well, as we work through the psalm, uh, a few different points. First, we'll see the psalmist's condition in verses 1 through 4. Then we'll see the psalmist's meditation starting in verse 5. And we'll, we'll consider what the Bible does and does not mean by meditation. And then we'll see the psalmist hope in God by meditating on five different things. God's salvation... God's sovereignty, God's steadfast love, and the security that that steadfast love affords, and fifthly, God's salvation again. We'll take those things in turn, and then near the end, we'll also spend some time thinking about how Psalm 42 might form the basis for our own meditations. Well, first, the psalmist's condition. So the psalmist starts with this image of a deer panting for water, Now, I have to ask, when you read the first line of the psalm, is anyone else singing about that praise and worship song from the 1980s? As a deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Okay, so I'm not alone when I read that. If you don't know it, it's a very pretty song, peaceful, flowing. It's actually a little bit too peaceful and flowing for for what we read in the psalm, right? Because you see, the image here is not like a deer frolicking by a babbling brook. No, because that babbling brook, it dried up like two weeks ago, right? And the deer's last drink was maybe from like a mud puddle two days ago. And unless it finds those still, quiet waters of Psalm 23 really soon, it's going to die a hot, scorching death of dehydration. That's basically what the psalmist's spiritual condition is like here. And his condition is aggravated by these enemies. He calls them adversaries. In verse 10, people who say something like, you know, you've been so open about your faith in God, so where's your God now? And the psalmist cries, and his every teardrop is another salty reminder of all their salty, stinging words. Friends, if you were in that situation, what would you thirst for? Maybe you just thirst for the pain to stop Maybe you'd want that bully to get transferred to a different school or a different branch in your company. Maybe if you're honest, you'd thirst for revenge. Well, let me ask you this. Um, If you're a parent, um, if your kid falls down and gets hurt and they run to you crying, uh, they might need a Band-Aid or an ice pack, right? But, I mean, really, more than that, don't they want to know that they're not alone and that you care about them and their pain? Isn't that what we all want? To know that we're not alone and that someone cares about us in our pain? See, deep down, whether or not we realize it, what we all thirst for is God. God himself. Like the psalmist in verse 2, his soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, the psalmist, he's not thirsting for like some vague, hazy, transcendent experience of God. Because look what's on his mind in verse 4. He remembers leading the people in procession into the house of God. Now, the house of God here means either the temple or the tabernacle in Jerusalem. So when he asks, when shall I come and appear before God in verse 2, that's not just a metaphor. It seems he really does want to come and appear before God physically at the temple. Except for right right now, for some reason, he's far away from the temple. (laughs) Verse 6 tells us that he's in the land of Jordan and Hermon, near Mount Bazar. Now, Jordan and Hermon were at least 100 miles north of Jerusalem, far north of Israel. Now, maybe we're wondering, okay, he's 100 miles from Jerusalem, so what? I mean, is this like when I'm out of town on a Sunday and I, I have to miss church? Well, not quite. And now this might be review... But you see, that Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, she was right when she tells Jesus, "Uh, You Jewish people say that Jerusalem's the place where we ought to worship. That was accurate. Because the temple in Jerusalem is the place that God chose for his name to dwell. Now, of course, God is everywhere. And, you know, Solomon knew that better than anyone. Uh, you remember in 1 Kings 8, when he dedicates the temple, he's built this beautiful temple to the Lord, and he says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I have built. See, God is everywhere, but in his mercy, God ordained that when sinners came to the temple with a contrite heart, instead of God requiring their life as a payment for sin. He'd accept an animal substitute in their place. And three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, all the males in Israel had to go to Jerusalem to appear before God in the temple and make certain sacrifices. But here's our psalmist, far from Jerusalem, where sins are atoned for, can't make those sacrifices. If you ask the psalmist... Hey, why are you so distressed? He'd probably look at you and say, "Are you kidding me? Why are you surprised? Did you not know that I must be in God's house?" Kind of like the boy Jesus will later say, "Far from Jerusalem, reduced to tears by his enemies." That's his condition. Now we're going to talk a bit about the psalmist's meditation. And first, just in general, what that means. Notice in verse 5, it's almost out of nowhere. The psalmist starts addressing his own soul. Kind of like David does. Remember when we studied Psalm 103 a few weeks ago? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, O my soul. Do you ever talk to your soul like that? This is what the Bible calls meditation meditation. Now, meditation, that doesn't mean that you like say a Bible verse over and over again until you go into a trance. No. <laughs> the late Tim Keller once said, meditation Meditating on God's Word is not a relaxation technique for emptying your mind. Rather, it's filling your mind with truth. Meditation is filling your mind with truth. Another author, Don Whitney says meditating on God's word is like steeping a cup of tea. That's where I got the kids' time from. So, right, God's word is like a tea bag, our mind's like a cup of hot water. The longer we let God's word steep, the more it permeates our mind and our heart, the more it comes to flavor our attitudes and our desires. What we get in verse five of Psalm 42 is kind of like the first plunge of the tea bag. And I think we learned something important right away from that phrase, hope in God, that we have there in the text. See, in this verse, hope is not just like a vague feeling that maybe things will work out okay. No. In this verse, hope is a verb. Hoping is an activity. Martin Lloyd-Jones once made a similar point about faith. He said... Faith isn't like a thermostat. You know, you set the spiritual AC in your life to 70 degrees. Then when things start to heat up in your life and it hits 71, it's just, bam, right? Your faith kicks in automatically. No, it doesn't work like that. See, we have to exercise things like faith and hope. And this almost does that here, first of all, by meditating on God's salvation. God's salvation. And no... Here in the text, it's not just any old salvation. He says, it's my God, my salvation. And that personal element is so beautiful. The Lord is my salvation. But you know, here's the thing that truth, for as beautiful as it is, it might not just float to the surface of our minds first thing in the morning. I don't know, maybe some of us jumped out of bed this morning singing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Or, I don't know, maybe we wake up with thoughts of bitterness or grumbling, or maybe thoughts of lust or jealousy. Friends, those types of thoughts, when they float to the surface, they're like dead fish. And when they float to the surface, and, you know, dead fish smell really bad and not let them stew in your mind. We just cannot do that. See, we've got to take our every thought captive. To obey Christ, like Paul says. Are you in the practice of doing that? Of training your mind and your thoughts? You know, friends, if your mind is always racing, if you just can't ever seem to control your thoughts, there's good news for you if you're a Christian. Because remember, part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. So let's ask the Holy Spirit that he'd help us be self-controlled in what we think about. And then by his power, we start to train our minds. I've been helped here again by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He makes this useful distinction between listening to yourself and talking to yourself. Listening to yourself, that's when those awful self-thoughts, you just kind of let them run amok, um, dictate what you're gonna think about, they just become like a virus in your mind. That's listening to yourself, but talking to yourself That's when you take the reins of your thoughts, and you say to your thoughts, thoughts, you are not gonna set the agenda for what I'm gonna think about. I'm gonna set the agenda for what I'm gonna think about. Now, how do we actually start to do that in practice? How do we actually start to talk to ourselves? I think the first step, um, when your thoughts are a flurry, is you've just gotta acknowledge, yeah, my thoughts are a flurry if you're wondering where I got that insight from, look at verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. It is. There's no point in denying it. Therefore, what? Do I feel sorry for myself? Do I watch ten hours of Netflix until I numb myself to sleep? That's not what it says. No. Therefore, I remember you. My soul's in turmoil Therefore, I remember you. That phrase is at the very center of the psalm, and it has to remain at the very center of our determination. Because remembering God, it's the only way we'll ever be like that person in Psalm 1. Remember that we, we read just earlier? Psalm 1 Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. You remember what it says? God promises that when you really meditate on his word, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Actually, a tree that never withers because its roots can find water even when the deer in Psalm 42 can't find the water. Friends, don't wait for that water to come to you. We've got to put our roots out now to tap into the well of God's word. Now, I wonder if we can learn something from the psalmist. Um, Sort of look over his shoulder, as it were, and see where he's deriving this hope of salvation from. Because at least in verse 5, so far we don't get a whole lot. Um, This is speculation on my part, but I wonder if he might have had the words of Moses in mind. Um, You know, if you keep your finger in Psalm 42, it might be helpful if we flipped real quick to... Exodus chapter 15, but don't let Psalm 42 go. In Psalm 42, the psalmist, he was just remembering in verse 4 how he used to lead people into Jerusalem, probably for celebrations like Passover. Maybe he was reading in the book of Exodus where it talks about Passover. Maybe then he goes on to read about the Exodus, Israel crossing the Red Sea, while Pharaoh's army drowns. And then maybe, just maybe, He gets to Exodus 15. And in Exodus 15, verse 1, it says, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Can we start to hear some of the similarity there between Exodus and what we read in Psalm 42? Moses says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. I wonder if the psalmist read that and thought, that's what I'm going to write about in verse 5. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's just a thought. But, you know, friends, the events in the Old Testament may have happened a long time ago, but they are not irrelevant to us. Because as Christians, we can read the Bible, and we can say, the God who did that, he's my God, too. He led Israel in an exodus out of Egypt, and, you know, now, for me in Christ, he's led me in an exodus, too. An exodus from the penalty of sin. My God. My God. My salvation. Well, from God's salvation, the psalmist starts meditating on God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. That means that God ordains everything that comes to pass, either by permission or by design. And for the psalmist, God's sovereignty becomes his lens through which he starts to see the circumstances in his life. So look at verse 7 deep calls to deep at the roar, not just of, of any waterfalls, of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So the psalmist is getting hit by these waves. Yeah, and he acknowledges it, but he also acknowledges those waves are coming from the hand of a sovereign God. And you know, Jonah said the same thing that we read earlier from the belly of the fish. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And we sang the same thing this morning, basically, didn't we? No trial has come beyond your hand. No step I walk beyond your plan. And as the psalmist thinks about God's sovereignty, it reminds him also of God's kindness and love. One of the commentaries points out, in verse 3, day and night, his focus is on his fears. Well, in verse 8, day and night show up again too, but... Now the focus is is not on his tears, it's by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me. What a change. I mean, here he is, far in the north of Israel, far from Jerusalem, being taunted by his enemies, right? His soul's in turmoil, but instead of letting his thoughts kind of run amok, he takes the reins and he starts steeping his mind in truth. Truth about God's salvation. And sovereignty, and now his steadfast love. Tim Keller explains that God's steadfast love is the love of a covenant God who cares for us, not because we are perfect, but because he is. God loves his children out of his own perfection. That's the basis of what we sang earlier. You have been faithful a thousand generations, slow to anger, swift to bless. Your hand has guided us through every situation. Your loving kindness hasn't failed us yet. Loving kindness, that means the same thing as steadfast love. And we know God extends his steadfast love to a thousand generations, he tells us in Deuteronomy 7. Now, I did some rough calculations at home if we figure maybe maybe about three generations a century, figure Moses was maybe 35 centuries ago or so, the psalmist was maybe about 15 generations out from Moses. Um, God's people today are not yet 200 generations out from Moses. So when God's people finally hit a 1,000 generations in like 30,000 years from now, Right? If Christ doesn't come home first, hasn't come back first, at that point, do you think God's going to say, "I've hit my generation quota"? <laughs> Done with the steadfast love? No. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; His mercies never come to an end. And just because His mercies are new every morning, that does not mean that they expire in the night. On the contrary. Take a look at verse 8. The Hebrew poetry here is so fascinating um, because we have these three phrases that seem to build off of one another. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now what is God's song here? And what is the psalmist's prayer? I think they're all the same thing. They're all God's steadfast love. What's going on here? God's steadfast love is God's song to the psalmist at night. And in turn, God's steadfast love is what the psalmist prays to God about. You know, normally when you hear the phrase echo chamber, it's because you've got a bunch of people who maybe aren't that bright. It's like a bad idea bouncing back and forth between them. But here we have the most beautiful echo chamber you can ever imagine, right? Because the thing that's being echoed is God's own loving character. And it starts with God singing this sweet, sweet lullaby at night. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then the psalmist echoes back in harmony. God, I hear you, and I praise you, and I thank you. That you have loved me and your people with an everlasting love. It's just like it says in 1 John this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. We love because God first loved us. Well, after meditating on God's steadfast love, it seems only natural that the psalmist starts meditating on one of the results of that love that is the security and the stability that that love brings for those who receive it. You know, I wonder if you ever felt like, you know, your parents were only going to love you if you were happy all the time or you got good grades or, I don't know, maybe you felt like your spouse was only going to love you if you kept yourself in really good shape. Friends, if that's you, my heart goes out to you. Because I know in that situation, you're only as secure as your next report card. You're only as secure as the next five pounds you lose. But if you've been blessed with parents or a marriage where it really is, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Friends, you can have a bad day and rest secure knowing that other person is not going to walk out. And when God accepts you, not because of who you are and what you've done, but because of who he is and what he's done, you have incredible freedom. Not freedom to be disrespectful, but freedom to be honest with what you're really thinking about. Because, you know, even when you are feeling freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, God's not going to leave you. That's why in verse 9, the psalmist calls God my rock, because he knows he's secure. And what's fascinating, his security with God does not make his prayers calmer. It actually makes him more intense. You see, verse 9 isn't, I say to God my rock, I feel very zen now, (laughs) but I know I'm secure in your love. (laughs) No, it's, I say to God my rock. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And if you didn't know better, you'd think the psalmist was disengaging because he starts repeating himself. Verse 10, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He said the same thing back in verse 3. Except it's getting worse now. See, in verse 3, he just wept. But in verse 10, he feels like he's got a deadly wound in his bones. Something awful just sapping his strength from the inside out. The point is, the more the psalmist reflects on God's love, the greater his agony. And being in agony, he prays the same thing even more earnestly. Now who else, being in agony, prays the same thing even more earnestly? Father, let this cup pass. Yet not my will but yours be done. Imagine with me if you will. Maybe the psalmist goes through his whole life, never knows why he had to go through all this that he did. And then one day he dies, and he enters heaven, and he says, God, I'm so glad to be here, but can you tell me why did I have to go through all that? And maybe God says, my dear beloved son of Korah, remember how you used to be a worship leader? You would lead people into Jerusalem for celebrations like Passover, Let's look a thousand years into the future. Here's another worship leader, a man from Nazareth. He's leading people into Jerusalem, palm branches, shouts of Hosanna. And son of Korah, remember how you wept day and night outside Jerusalem, thinking I'd forgotten you? Well, this man, Jesus, he's going to be known as the man of sorrows. And he's going to call out to me from outside Jerusalem too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Son of Korah, remember how your enemies taunted you, saying, where is your God? Same with this man. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. And finally, the Son of Korah gets it. That man on the cross, he knows. He knows everything I went through. One of my favorite hymns has a line, There is a hope that lifts my weary head. A consolation strong against despair, that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find the Savior there. Friends, Jesus was actually in an even deeper pit. Because like the psalmist, yeah, he got hit by waves and breakers like you and I do as normal humans. right? But more than that, he gets hit by the waves and breakers of God's wrath for sin that should be hitting every one of us. You know, maybe you've heard a thousand and one times that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe you even believe it's true in sort of like a general intellectual sort of way, Um, but that's not enough. Because if we stop there just saying, yeah, I I guess it's true, sort of, that would sort of be like saying, um, you know, uh, yes, I believe it's true that the city of Parma picks up garbage in my neighborhood on Tuesday mornings. Never actually taken my trash to the curb, but it's still nice to know they come by. (laughs) I mean that would that would be absurd, right? Um, You know, Jesus is not entirely unlike those good people who collect our garbage. Have you actually entrusted him to take your sin away? Let him take it to the dump, as it were, right now, so that on Judgment Day. You don't have to go to that dump from which there is no return. And friends, if you're thinking, come on, a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. My friends, can you see that the chief expression of God's love is the cross of Christ, which can keep you from hell? See, God is merciful, but he's also just. You think God saw this, this weak psalmist in the north of Israel being taunted and oppressed by his enemies, and God says, I don't care, guys, do whatever you want to him. No, what kind of a monster God would that be? God in his justice demands that the sins of those oppressors be dealt with. And God in his mercy is willing to forgive those same oppressors if they turn to him in repentance and faith. Now how can God both forgive you and hold you accountable? Is that an oxymoron? Not if there's a perfect substitute to take your place. And you see, God chose his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our sin, do you see the security that is involved there? Because my Christian friend, if God gladly received you in Christ at the tail end of the time that you were his enemy, will he love you less now that he's made you his own child? Can he be indifferent when you come to him for anything at all? Even if it's just to be comforted in his presence? Friends, if you have been accepted on the secure basis, not of what you've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done, then I am convinced that neither thirst, nor tears, nor an enemy's taunts, nor any powers of grief or depression or feeling like no one in the world understands you, none of that will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. Well, the psalmist ends by meditating once again on God's salvation. Now, you may have noticed verse 11 here is exactly the same as verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? I think it's a good reminder, isn't it, that exhorting ourselves to hope is never a one-and-done deal. Maybe the psalmist is learning what Paul had to learn. Remember when Paul pleaded with God those three times about the thorn in his flesh? Remember what God told him? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, sometimes the only way we can learn that truth is through tears. Friends, if you're thinking, I hear you, but I'm just exhausted from all my crying. How long is this going to go on? You know, I don't know. But I do know God promises in 1 Peter 5 that we studied a month ago, that if you humble yourself under his mighty hand, casting all your anxiety upon him, that at the proper time, he will exalt you. That's what he promises. Will you trust the timing of that exaltation to him? And in the meantime, won't you be like Jacob? Remember when Jacob wrestles with God and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Will you tell God, I am not going to let you go? And don't let him go. Because remember, when you're his child, he is not going to let you go. And friends, for the body of Christ, may we also be his strong arms of comfort that hold fast. Well, two more things, and we'll be done. I said we'd spent some time thinking about how Psalm 42 might form the basis of our own meditations. Friends, if you're a Christian and you've never thought about hoping in God as like an activity that you actually have to do and practice, Psalm 42 is actually a great place to start You can even go home and use the outline in your bulletin as sort of a template. Here's what you might do. Start by acknowledging your condition before God. Tell him what's going on in your mind and your heart. And then remember that this God is your God and your salvation. And remember that the sovereign hands that ordain your circumstances were the same hands nailed to a cross. Reconcile you to God. And then sing God's steadfast love back to Him as a prayer. And then confess any sin that you might need to, knowing that you are incredibly secure in the arms of your Savior. And friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know, you can do this too. You just have a different starting point. So for you, start by being honest with God about your condition. Tell him you know you're a sinner, and you need his salvation, and confess that Jesus is the sovereign Son of God, and put your faith in him alone for his steadfast love at the cross, where he paid for sin, and then rest in your newfound security in Christ. You know, as we wrap up, I can't help but wonder, what might it have been like for Jesus to meditate on Psalm 42. You know, we're told that in the Garden of Gethsemane, an angel came to strengthen him. It doesn't tell us a whole lot, but, you know, I would not be surprised to learn if the angel, at least in part, strengthened him by reminding him of Scripture. Maybe even Psalm 42. Maybe Jesus thinks about all the themes in this psalm that he's probably memorized since he was a boy. And maybe he talks to himself. Maybe he says, I know very well why my soul is cast down. But oh my soul, hope in God because after it's finished, I'll rise again to praise him. And when the curtain tears, the redeemed will worship God in spirit and in truth, not in just Jerusalem, but from anywhere in the world. And at the end of time, just like that son of Korah, I will lead the procession into the new Jerusalem exodus from the very presence of sin and i will receive their glad shouts of worship and i will lead them in songs of praise to the father forever remember this my christian friends we have seen a fuller revelation of god's steadfast love than the psalmist did so shouldn't we be more fervent in our prayers more fervent in corporate worship more fervent sharing the gospel, more fervent exhorting ourselves and our friends in the church to hope all the more as we see the day approaching. May God help us to that end. Let's pray. Father, you have told us of your steadfast love. And we pray your song right back to you. Father, we praise and thank you that you've been faithful to a thousand generations. God, you are our God. You are our God. And we will live to sing your praises. You are the joy of our hearts and our rock. And thank you that you do not let your children go. And we pray that you would attract your enemies with that same sweet truth. Father, we want to love you with all our heart and soul and mind. And so, Holy Spirit, to that end, would you guide us to be self-controlled in our thoughts so that we'd have clear minds to meditate on the word, so that we can exhort ourselves and those around us to hope. We ask this in Jesus' name.